Welcome to NSL Unscripted, a national security law podcast, brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's The Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. We bring you conversations and hot topics from NSL practitioners today and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to NSL Unscripted. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Laura West. Today we have a very special episode. I am joined in the podcast studio with Lieutenant Colonel Dan Maurer, another professor in the National Security Law Department. And Dan is coming on the show today to talk about a really interesting question that he posed to all of us in the department and his class last week. That question is a state's legal duty to warn its own civilians on consequences of direct participation in hostilities. Hi, Dan. Hi, Laura. Hey, thanks for joining the podcast today. Well, you're my boss, so I didn't really have a choice, but happy to be here. <laughs> well, we appreciate that you are here. So, um, Dan, you had this really interesting question, and I wanted to have you on the podcast, um, not only because it's a super interesting question, but after you posed this question, you took about a day to write in an entire article for Articles of War that will be published shortly. So we wanted to give a little light to this article and this idea. I'm going to just start by asking you to pose the same question that you posed to all of us the other day. Sure. Uh, so the question, which you stated pretty succinctly and correctly, is uh, a question that doesn't have an answer right now in international law, uh, which is why I asked it in the first place, because I have no idea what the answer is. And the the trigger for this, no pun intended, was uh, a lesson in the war crimes elective that I'm currently teaching. And the third lesson for this elective is about, you guessed it, Russia-Ukraine, um, kind of a topical issue right now. So one of the things that we had the students read was um, an article on Articles of War blog by Mike Schmidt and Casey Biggerstaff that talks about a new um, novel, innovative uh, app, a cell phone app that Ukrainians can download to their cell phones for free that allows them to uh, identify, uh, track, and basically geolocate the trajectory of incoming aircraft, missiles, rockets, drones, uh, Russians, obviously, um, and then send that data instantaneously to a local air defense artillery unit, which then can use that data to shoot down that, uh, that incoming overhead um, uh, threat from Russia. So the issue that that uh, we wanted to talk about was, well, is this um, this action by a civilian using this app, um, which is analogous to a rooftop spotter, is that considered direct participation in hostilities? And that is a legal term we can get into in a, here in a few minutes. But basically what that means is a civilian loses their protection under international law and they can become targetable by the adversary force. And it's not a war crime to then shoot that that civilian. Um, because they are engaging essentially like combatant. So the question that the the authors of the article pose is, is that DPHing or direct participation in hostilities? And if so, when does it start? When does it end? That that was the question we wanted to pose to the students. But as I was reading the article, it occurred to me that, um, well, the novelty of the technology, the u- ubiquitousness of the technology, the ease of use of the technology – suggests that many, many people are going to be using this. In fact, at the time of the article being written, 
just a few weeks after it was introduced, the app was introduced, almost 200,000 people had already downloaded the app. And by now, it's, it's probably close to a million. And my thought was, or question was, uh, does Ukraine owe a duty to warn its citizens that the use of this app could constitute DPH? And therefore, they would lose their protected status for that certain period of time. And this question is interesting and relevant because Ukraine is not an independent or neutral actor here. Ukraine actively sponsored the app. They promoted on the Ministry of Defense website. They had some hand, it appears, in working with the software firm that developed the app. And again, they're actively promoting its use. And they're not getting in the way of its being used. Uh, in fact, they're lauding its use. They're, they're congratulating citizens who are using this as a, as a defensive measure uh, in, support of, um, in support of the homeland. So the question for me was, again, does Ukraine owe a duty under international law to warn its citizens that what it's doing uh, is promoting their DPHing? Now, again, DPH, direct participation in hostilities, is not itself a war crime. That's not unlawful at all. You can do that. You just don't want to commit a war crime while you're doing that. So while the civilians lose their protected status, uh, it's almost like a caveat emptor, buyer beware. Do you, do you, would you use this app if you knew that you could be targeted for using the app lawfully? In other words, Russia would not be committing a war crime if it dropped a bomb on you instead of the military unit that it was originally targeting. So when I posed this question, long, long answer to your question. When I, <laughs> when I posed the, the question to you all, um, I didn't have an answer, and it led to, I think, a really cool, interesting conversation between three or four of us for about half an hour, and none of us had a, had a good answer other than, no, there probably isn't anything explicit under international law that says there's an affirmative duty to do that warning, but there certainly seems like a moral duty to do that. So then my homework to myself was, uh, can I find something in international law that suggests that you could maybe impute this duty? Or something that just rejects it outright. And then I wanted to pose that question in class. And so the class was a few days later. And we went through uh, an entire hour of talking about uh, use and bellow issues and rules of engagement and direct participation in hostilities. And before I could get to my question, after talking about the this, this app, again, the app is called EPPO, lowercase e, capital P, capital P, capital O. It's It, it translates to e-air defense. Uh, after we talked about that uh, in class, one of the students, kind of sua sponte on their own, said, sir, this raises an interesting question. Does Ukraine have a duty to, to warn its citizens before they use it? And I just about cried. I was so happy. Um, <laughs> and it, it launched into probably 20 or 25 minutes of really good classroom discussion about uh, the implications for this app, which is exactly the purpose behind bringing it up in the first place. And and again, no one believed that there was an explicit affirmative duty under international law to do this warning, but maybe there ought to be one. All right. Before we dig into some of your thoughts on where we could maybe potentially find a duty to warn, I'm going to back up and say, Dan raised this question literally last week had his class that afternoon. We talked about it as well. Before his class, we kind of threw out some ideas that, you know, some potential thoughts on where a duty to warn might come in or, or perhaps show that there is no duty to warn. 
under the law. When Dan says he gave himself some homework, he literally went home and wrote an article in like a day. Dan is a prolific writer, so uh, that that's nothing but what we would have expected from him. But uh, we're having this podcast because Dan's article is about to come out in the Articles of War um, from the Lieber Institute. And so you can further read the article there. Um, but so Dan, when you went and did your homework and had conversations with the students, lead some of the listeners through the international laws that you kind of came up with to perhaps suggest that there might be a duty to warn. Sure. And, and, and thanks for the plug on the, the, the forthcoming article. <laughs> uh, and speed does not equate to quality. Uh, as the editorial process is now ongoing and, uh, it's a long slog. So hopefully it'll be out, uh, in a week or so, uh, more to follow. But, um, I, when I did the research, I also asked, uh, some real experts, Mike Schmidt and Sean Watts, both of whom are, are affiliated with the Lieber Institute for Law of Land Warfare up at West Point, uh, and former colleagues of mine. And I asked them the question and neither one of them had a, had, a, had an answer either. So I, I knew then I was on the right track. This is a question that doesn't have an answer and therefore is worth talking about some more. So the, the bottom line is the standard is civilians are to be protected uh, from attack. Uh, that's the default rule under international law. Civilians are not to be attacked. Uh, that's customer international law. That's in treaty law. And both uh, in terms of uh, avoiding unnecessary collateral damage and just being made the deliberate target of an attack. So there is protection there. Uh, however, the exception being if they are directly participating in hostilities. The the way the International Committee for the Red Cross uh, describes DPH uh, is as a kind of a three-part test or three-pronged test. And there has to be a threshold of harm. That is, the act by the, the civilian has to be likely to adversely affect the military operations or military capacity of the of the, uh, the other party to the conflict. There has to be a direct causation. There's a direct proximate link between the act and the harm. And there has to be a belligerent nexus. That means the, the, the act must be intended to cause that harm. Um, so it's not an accidental negligent discharge, in, in other words. So belligerent nexus, direct causation, and threshold of harm. The devil's in the details because the ICRC has a, a an interpretation of DPH that is that is um, widespread, but also not necessarily consistent in all respects with how the U.S. interprets DPH. And DPH for us is a is a broader would encompass a broader range of conduct and activities for a longer period of time, depending on the circumstances and, and, and the activity involved. Whereas the ICRC has a much n- more narrow view on it. That's not really important for the purpose of EPPO. Uh, as Mike Schmidt talked about in his article, at least at some point in the uh, act of using this application, they are DPHing. That's fairly uncontroverted. Um, and again, just to give the, the the listener a visual here, uh, it's a an app that you can download for free from um, this private firm that has essentially the sponsorship of the Ukrainian government. As long as you're 18 or older, you can access it. Uh, once you've authenticated your identification through the app, you then point your cell phone uh, you select uh, from a menu of potential targets on the cell phone app itself. So rocket, missile, helicopter, aircraft, drone. You then point your cell phone at that incoming or overhead object and click a big red button in the center of the screen. And that transmits the data. So at some point in that process, you are DPHing. And, and 
again, for the, for the sake of this argument, uh, we don't need to talk about, uh, you know, at what point do you officially start DPHing or, or you're not DPHing? Is it when you download the app? Is it when you open the app? Uh, or is it when you just press the button? For the sake of this thought question, assuming they are DPHing at some point, assuming that they will engage in, a, in an act that triggers their loss of protection under international law, does Ukraine owe a warning? Kind of a caveat emptor. So, DPH is the way that you lose this protection. Now, notwithstanding that loss of protection, there are ways to interpret existing treaty law, Geneva Conventions and the additional protocols that might suggest that a state like Ukraine has an obligation to present this warning. Again, there's nothing, and I'll be clear, there's nothing explicit. There's nothing affirmative in any law that says Ukraine is currently violating the law by not giving a warning. Uh, there is nothing that affirmative. But if you read kind of, I guess, between the lines or read the intent behind the drafters of certain additional protocols, 57 and 58 of AP1, which talk about precautions in the defense and precautions in the offense, the way you can read those is, I think clearly um, a duty to protect civilians from the the effects, the harms associated with combat, broadly interpreted. Uh, for example, Article 58 uh, of AP1, it says, among other things, it holds the parties shall, to the maximum extent feasible, take other necessary precautions to protect the civilian population, individual civilians, and civilian objects under their control against the dangers resulting from military operations. Okay. Now, that is not just in AP1, but is also in the U.S. DOD Law of War Manual. It says that's customary international law. You, you might wonder, is there an ambiguity in that text? You know, what civilians are, are we trying to protect? Is it civilians that are in the area that we're about to bombard and we owe them a warning because, hey, that's a military operation and they're in danger? Do we owe them a, 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 a prefatory warning? Or are we talking about civilians much more broadly? If you look at the commentary, the ICRC's commentary from 1987 about this article, it says, this article is not concerned with laying down rules for the conduct to be observed in attacks on territory under the control of the adversary, but with measures which every power must take in its own territory in favor of its nationals or in territory under its control. Then it goes on to say, Belligerents may expect their adversaries to conduct themselves fully in accordance with their treaty obligations and to respect the civilian population, but they themselves must also cooperate by taking all possible precautions for the benefit of their own population, as is in any case in their own interest. It doesn't matter if you read those articles and read the commentary. It doesn't matter if we're talking about the civilians in the adversary country or your own host nation civilians, your own population. It doesn't matter if it's in the offense or the defense. It's a much broader population that we're concerned about. Uh, Article 57.1, which just talks about precautions in the attack, it says very, very broadly, in the conduct of military operations, constant care shall be taken to spare the civilian population, civilians, and civilian objects. So, Reading 57.1 and 58 and the commentary, this could be read. It's not illogical to read. It's not unreasonable to read them as saying a state has a, a much broader, uh, robust duty to ensure the overall protection of its civilian population. Now, one way to do that is to warn them that when they're engaging in certain hostile activities, they are now the lawful target 
of their adversary that they were trying to defend against. Again, nothing explicit, nothing affirmative that says a a state has this duty. But in light of the new technology, in light of how prolific it is, in light of how easy it is to use, um, it's not unreasonable to think that this kind of tool that augments, supplements existing air defense capabilities uh, will be so widely used that it's almost unreasonable to think the state shouldn't warn its civilians that what they're going to be doing is DPHing. Again, with DPH comes a loss of their protected status. They are now no longer uh, potential collateral damage. They can be made the direct target of an adversarial attack. Again, in a, in a place like Ukraine right now, where they are facing this existential crisis, where if they lose, they may lose their nation, their homes, their families, everything, would such a warning chill their behavior? I suspect probably not. If there was such a warning, they would probably take it under advisement and still do what they were going to do anyway, because they're looking out for themselves, their families, their neighbors, their towns, their communities. And the fact that they might be made a target, well, they'll think we already are a target. So what's the difference? But this obviously, this this issue extends beyond just Ukraine and, and beyond just um, the this ePPO app. Whenever a state decides to give the means and or the encouragement to use those means to their civilians and says, hey, use this as you see fit at your discretion. Whenever you see the enemy, you're exposing them uh, to a level of threat that they weren't not necessarily anticipating. Most people, I would assume, I think we can safely assume that most people know that they are not to be made the target of an attack. And if they are hurt or injured, it's because they were collateral damage. And as terrible as that is, they're collateral damage. Most civilians who are using a cell phone, who are somewhat arguably passively engaged by pointing a cell phone at an object, most would probably not think that they are directly participating in hostilities. But I think it's clear that the the way the law is interpreted now, that act is. But they're not clear about what that consequence might be. Again, whether they care about that consequence, that's a different matter altogether. I think the last... um, main point to make, and there are, there are a couple other things to say about, uh, you know, does, does international human rights law, does that body of law have something to say here? For, for example, a state has a default duty to respect and protect the right of life of their own citizens. So maybe you can interpret that very broadly to to impute, in addition to anything else in, in international law, this, this duty to warn their citizens when they might engage in conduct that can put them at risk. Um, the law on Uh, On the right to life under Article 2, for example, of the European Convention on Human Rights, which both Ukraine and Russia are signatories to, it's pretty complex and there's a lot there. um, And the article uh, will stay away from that to a large extent. Um, But that's a a separate question. I think there's enough in current treaty law, current IHL, uh, humanitarian law, to suggest that there's a duty. Um, you could say maybe the law of state attribution um, or state responsibility could say something about this too. For example, um, when a person, whether they're a service member or a civilian, when they do an unlawful act uh, in the name of the state, at the direction of the state, with the state's acquiescence, that bad act can be attributed back to the state itself. Now, assume that the average use of this EPPO app would be lawful uh, under the law of war. That's fine, but what if it were used unlawfully? What if uh, a Ukrainian citizen were, were to use this app to take down a Russian uh, passenger jet on purpose for whatever reason? That would be a war crime. Or they use the app to help the military locate some adversarial 
force and that that and then that leads to a, a, a law of armed conflict violation perhaps in violation of Geneva 3 the POW convention some something else they commit some unlawful act by using this application under certain circumstances that might be attributed back to the state if that's the case then it seems reasonable to think that the state has a due diligence requirement to in advance of that possibility warn them again that their action is or would be considered direct participation in hostilities and therefore can trigger all these other things like war crimes, like them being made a lawful target of, of, a, of a lawful attack by Russia. So those are some general kind of first impression thoughts about this. Again, this is a, again, a question that arose last week. Um, and there is nothing affirmative either in scholarship or in case law or in the treaties that talk to it. Uh, so I would encourage, you know, any readers who, or any listeners out there who have thoughts, who have, uh, who have, who have thought about this before in the past or have some research on it, you know, write about it, talk about it, reach out to the JAG school, talk to us about it. Um, this is a, this is a new question. And I think EPPO is an example of a technology that will continue to proliferate and continue to be used in this way and continue to, to, to pull uh, otherwise non-combatant populations into a fight. And it's, it's interesting because one would think this would be more prevalent in kind of a NIAC, a non-international armed conflict, like a counterinsurgency or counterterrorism fight where uh, interaction and engagement between civilians and military forces on the battlefield, right? Where the battlefield is and is, and is not is very hard to distinguish who is an enemy combatant, who is not very hard to distinguish. And you wouldn't think it would be an issue in a traditional, conventional, international armed conflict, state on state. When you think of that conflict or kind of conflict, you think World War II. You think the original Persian Gulf War. You think massive armies battling each other out in the forest or the desert away from major cities. Well, clearly, that's not the case in Ukraine. You have an international armed conflict in, involving the entire population. Um, and so when you have the entire population exposed to the means by which they can engage deliberately and directly in those hostilities, you now expose them to a, a degree of international law that they would not have been otherwise exposed to um, or an implication of international law that they would not have been otherwise exposed to. And so it seems like the moral thing to do, the right thing to do is to for the government to warn them that there are consequences to that. All right. I'm going to try and summarize what your main arguments are here or proposed methods of finding something in international law that could give us this duty to warn. So, okay. You gave us um, three potential areas of law, international law that could potentially arise this duty to warn. You said that potentially this arises out of um, the additional protocols, protocol one, um, and specifically article 57 and 58, where the state has a, a duty to protect its civilians, um, as well as all civilians. Um, but it's not specific to just the adverse parties or adverse belligerents, uh, civilians, correct? That's right. Okay. So, and then two, argument two you have is perhaps not only international humanitarian law, but international human rights law has something to say about this. But again, you'd have to first come to the conclusion that we would apply international human rights law to this application and not say that 
international human rights law, humanitarian law, is a lex specialis, right? That's right. Uh, under our, you know, at least U.S. interpretation, uh, IHL, international humanitarian law or law of armed conflict, displaces human rights law in a time of armed conflict in the place of armed conflict. So um, unless the law of armed conflict is silent about a matter, then uh, that body of law supplants or replaces the default human rights body of law. But that is not necessarily the case or interpretation from some of our allies and partners, and certainly not in Europe. Right. Uh, whereas basically the courts there and, and the states there interpret them to exist kind of uh, uh, coextensively. They, they work at the same time and they kind of augment each other as confusing as that might be and as hard to interpret as that might be that's the way they interpret the law so it's possible that under that uh, under a european type view uh article 2 right to life may in fact be a better stronger argument to support this duty to warn than traditional ihl okay great okay so and then the third one you had was basically under the law of state responsibility correct that's where you're going with your third argument. Yeah, and and that is, of the three, the weakest of the three. Because again, I'm not saying the law of state responsibility imposes that duty at all. What I'm saying is an implication of that law of state responsibility might lead you to infer reasonably a duty on the state. Again, nothing, nothing affirmative in that body of law says so. Uh, but it, when you read that and you want to be consistent with IHL, it's possible to make that that inference. The other point I would make, and this is not so much a um, a legal, but more of a, a consistency piece, is the law does require states to educate and inform its militaries about law of armed conflict and the consequences of breaking the law of armed conflict. But not only the militaries, but also the civilian populations. That's in treaty law and it's in customary international law. The obligation of a state to educate. Its, pop, its entire population about LOAC, law of armed conflict, and its consequences. So if we owe a duty to uh, a military service member uh, to train them and teach them about the consequences of when you are properly a combatant and when you're properly not a combatant and the consequences of breaking the law of war and when you lose your combatant immunity, it seems reasonable to analogize that to a civilian duty as well. Okay. So... I'm going to throw a wrench into your analysis and see what you say. Shoot. This is the discussion that we were having in the hallway. And essentially, everybody kind of came to the same conclusion that we can't really point to something in international law that would suggest there's this explicit duty to warn. But some of the conversation was, well, first, we're assuming that they're DPHing that they are directly participating in hostilities. So there was the other argument of, well, perhaps they're not. So I wanted to see if you wanted to touch on that. And, and specifically, you know, a few of us raised, well, perhaps there's not the belligerent nexus in that maybe this is really a form of civil defense. Um, and if we look to the additional protocol, additional protocol one, there's provisions in there about civil defense and specifically article 62, which talks about um, civilians being able to be given things like small arms um, from the military and potentially could include civilians detecting and marking dangerous areas or just simply warning. But now, of course, you know, we know how this app is being used. 
and as you described earlier, specific to drones or airstrikes. And so does that argument, you think, hold up if we were to suggest that maybe they're not DPHing in the first place? Maybe this is some form of civil defense? Yeah, so uh, a couple things. One is, even if they're DPHing, they don't lose their civilian status. They just lose their protected status. But that's kind of beside the point. It's interesting. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more. Because that's a good nuance to point out to our listeners, right? So what do you mean by they don't lose their civilian status, they just lose their protected status? Right. So notwithstanding the fact that they are engaged in some kind of combat acti- activity, they're they're shooting at something. You know, if it were more direct, they were, they're given a rifle or a grenade and they're actively using that like a like a soldier would. They lose that protection, that, that uh, shield from international law that says they are not to be attacked. If you were to attack them, you're committing a war crime. For the to the extent and during the time in which they are actively engaged in hostilities, they lose that protection. They don't cease to be civilians. They're not somehow conscripted into the military from then, the, you know, thenceforth. They are just simply uh, without that shield for that period of time. And again, the ICRC has a view on how long that shield exists, and the U.S. has a different view on that. But again. I think uh, most I, – I don't want to say most, but there is a decent argument, and Mike Schmidt made this argument, that the the active use of the app, at least to the extent of pointing it, aiming it, and pushing the button, would constitute DPH in part or if not in most because the amount of time between um, – Sending the information and that information being used by the actual military to do something harmful to the adversarial military uh, is so short that it's uh, it's almost like a proximate causation relationship between the civilian user of the app and the drone being taken down. They're essentially augmenting in real time air defense capability. You know, as almost as if they were handing a rifle to a soldier standing next to them and having the soldier then use the rifle right then and there. Um, so in the civil defense context, you know, um, and I think Mike Schmick talks about this as well in a, in a follow-up article on Articles of War, uh, where he talks about, uh, you know, giving warnings, uh, civilian giving warnings about an impending attack that maybe happens a few hours later. Um, that in and of itself is not DPHing. There, there is, uh, I guess under the the direct causation prong of this, um, a a temporal and geographic kind of element to it. So the closer you are to the actual use of the um, aggressive act uh, in time or place, the more likely it is to be considered a belligerent act and a direct link between the act and the harm caused. Um, just as if it were like under you know criminal attempt law. Uh, how close you are in time and place and activity to the actual crime, the closer you are to making that attempt being uh, a criminal offense itself. So I think, um, I, I guess, depending on what civil defense thing you're talking about, uh, the answer would be it depends. So again, I, to, to, your, to your question of is it even DPH, you're right. If it's not DPH, then they don't lose their protected status and – you know, it's a moot. It's a moot point. Um, it would be a war crime for for Russia or anyone to attack that person if it's not actual DPH. Um, so, 
I think this is an area that should generate more conversation and more research. You know, what is the interplay, the, the overlap or intersection between Article 62 and then implications that we're making from um, 57 and 58? Uh, because again, this, these, these additional protocols were not written at a time when this technology existed to make it an, an issue to worth talking about at all anyway. So the, the, the law has been out, outpaced by technology, which is true in most cases. So how did these two interact? I don't know. Um, I think it would be a, at least now in my head, a, a, a completely fact dependent, case dependent analysis. Uh, but you're right. If if they're not DPHing, then it's not an issue. Right. And I just think generally our technology today kind of tests these notions of um, what is that belligerent nexus, if you will, right? So if individuals walk around with cell phones all day and there are many surveillance devices, there is a conscious decision you're making when you're pressing that application button on your phone or pointing it up and taking a picture of the drone flying overhead, right? But what what about um, data flowing from your phone without that conscious des- decision, right? Um, although you might have agreed to terms of service. Yeah. Um, and then that questions a lot of things like internet of things mm-hmm. that are out there that basically are constantly surveilling. Do those things become military yeah. objects do they yeah. lose their protected status as civilian objects yeah. because they are being used by the military right. for military means yeah uh, absolutely right that, that is the concern and i think it forces us to re-emphasize the importance of the belligerent nexus piece of it right the kind of the intent of the user and the intent of the app itself so for example um you know, a, a pair of binoculars can be used for many reasons, many things. A rifle can be used for hunting, for self-defense, and for and for attacking a military target. Binoculars can be used for hunting and bird watching and uh, spotting incoming aircraft and relaying that information to uh, your friends in uniform. The EPPO app has one purpose and one purpose alone, and that is to identify military targets and then transmit that data not to some cloud database or some repository somewhere or, or just posted online. It sends the data to an air defense artillery battery, which then uses that data because they wouldn't have otherwise had it uh, to then target that thing coming in and shooting it down, which has an adverse effect on the adverse military. So when the user, when the app user uh, downloads it and pushes the button, they are, we are assuming that they know what that's doing, Right. We assume that. In fact, the website that that says where you can download this from describes its purpose. It describes the fact that the Ministry of Defense supports this app and why they support it. Uh, I mean, and, and you can't blame them. It's a novel, innovative thing, and and it kind of it expands the defensive web over Ukraine uh, considerably. So it's a great tactical device. But again, we're assuming that the civilians who are using it understand the consequences of them participating in that web. Uh, that air defense web. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, here's an e-tool. Uh, we could really use your help, you know, digging a trench uh, around that school or that hospital or that that road intersection. Um, you know, it, it'll help the the impending advance of the, of the Russian tank column a week from now that we anticipate. Please help us dig the, the trench. Bet- there's a big difference between that and then giving an app to a person and saying, use this app. And when you use this app, within minutes, the information that you sent 
and no one else sent um, will contribute to a, a, a missile being shot from an, a military device against another military device and, and helping the war effort. That is a direct contribution and an informed direct contribution, but we're assuming it's informed, right? We're, we're assuming that they understand what the consequences are of what they're doing and then what that means for them, that they are directly participating in hostilities. Mm-hmm. So it becomes even more important in today's you know, information environment or technology environment that we key in on aspect of intent or belligerent nexus, which perhaps we maybe overlooked or took for granted in, in, you know, the counterterrorism fight. Mm-hmm. Um, although I want to bring back something you originally started with and talking about spotting, having deployed overseas, um, both of us in that position. I mean, spotting was sort of the quintessential direct participation in hostility with a civilian as simple as, um, you know, a civilian holding up a mirror, that would then inform insurgents or whoever that uh, essentially a convoy was coming through. And that was always the example for even the slightest action in assisting the other belligerent party or uh, combatants would be considered direct participation in hostilities. Yes. So, that's why I wanted to key in on that particular nuance there and show some of that distinction um, between how slight yeah. of an action this is to just press a button on a phone, but we have to be more conscious of yeah. the uh, intent behind right. it. Right. And it's almost like, you know, as you were describing the, the spotter and the mirror, it, it occurred to me that maybe this is a lot more like um, a, a sniper team where you have a sniper and you have a spotter and uh, the spotter is lasing the target uh, and they're putting a, you know, a, a laser finder, a red dot on the target, which allows the person with the rifle to actually aim more accurately and then press the button. Both those members of the sniper team are belligerents. They're both actively hostile. Both of them are lawful targets. Uh, one is pulling a trigger, one is not. And the amount of time between the person placing the laser red dot and the other person pulling the trigger is not that different from the amount of time between the civilian using the EPBO app and the air defense battery shooting down the the drone, for example. Um, so that, to my mind, is a, a, a close, a, even a closer analogy than simply using a mirror to shine light or you know burning tires to uh, to create smoke to indicate you know incoming Blackhawks, for example. Um, yeah. It, it's this is, a, this is a very interesting problem because under the U.S. interpretation, the irony is under the U.S. interpretation of DPH, probably – again, I'm not speaking on behalf of the U.S. government. I'm speaking on my, behalf of my own understanding of DPH. Our interpretation of DPH would be that a regular user of this EPPO app, once they've downloaded it and they have formulated an intent, a subjective intent to use it, and then they use it regularly. They are now a target, a, a, a standing target for Russian forces, even if they're not actively using it, because they're essentially, you know, walking in and out of that revolving door, uh, where the ICRC would interpret that as stopping their DPH. We would interpret that, at least we have in the past during the global war on terror. We would say that they're 
kind of regular aptitude or regular intent to use that application or that device uh, makes them a standing target until they affirmatively disengage and say, we're no longer actively doing this. I'm, I'm throwing the app away. I'm deleting my, my app from my phone. I'm throwing the phone away. Unless there's something objectively affirmative, you know, taking them away out of the fight, we're going to consider them a target. Uh, so that broader interpretation of DPH, if you applied it to Ukrainian citizens using this application, it, it's interesting. We would, if Russia took that tack, we would have a lot of complaints about it. Yet, ironically, that is the tack that we took in admittedly a different kind of warfare. So maybe that's the difference, is that uh, this kind of interpretation of DPH is more appropriate, more understandable and reasonable. The broader one that we have used is more appropriate under conditions in which um, the fight is not between uh, uh, armed forces of nation A and armed forces of nation B, but more of a counterinsurgency or counterterrorism fight where it's much harder um, to distinguish. You know, following that principle of, of low act of, of distinction, much harder to follow and, and, and apply. Whereas in a fight like Ukraine-Russia, um, it is ostensibly easier to see who the, who the good guys and the bad guys are uh, and, to, and for a state to give appropriate warnings to those who are – and training to those who are acting on its behalf. So maybe that's the difference between the two. Uh, interpretations of D- or applications of DPH is, is the kind of fight that you're in. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. It's a good distinction to make there. So, um, all right, Dan, we are reaching our time limit here. Um, anything you want to conclude with? Uh, no, no, thanks, Laura. I appreciate the time. And uh, again, this is such a, a new question. I am by no means uh, saying I have anything close to the right answer about this, but I am, again, posting this this article on Articles of War uh, from the Libra Institute probably in a week or two. I don't know. Pretty soon. Um, and if listeners have comments or concerns or questions or a rebuttal, please, by all means, contribute to the discussion because right now it is a discussion. And we have the luxury here sitting in Charlottesville, Virginia, to debate this kind of academically and uh, kind of um, – academically, uh, whereas the folks in, in Ukraine uh, don't, don't have that luxury. So um, I look forward to more discussion about this and more debate, and, and uh, maybe someone can point out a, a better place in the law to say it is a duty or is not a duty. And I, I certainly welcome that. And I would, you know, for those who are, uh, for, for JAG Corps members out there uh, if, uh, who are incoming students or, or forthcoming students at the grad course, uh, I hope you view this as an opportunity or view the grad course opportunity as a setting where you can engage in these kinds of questions with faculty, with other, with other students kind of outside of the daily grind of being a judge advocate counselor to commanders and, and, uh, and to soldiers. You can think about these questions more deeply with the benefit of talking to your peers, um, in a, in a, in a, in a safe space, so to speak. And, and what you can learn about and what you can, can think about and what you can talk about, uh, may very well have real world impact later on. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for joining. This episode of NSL Unscripted was brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's The Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. The views presented are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components, the Department of the Army, 
for the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. Our department also produces the Operational Law Handbook, accessible online. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and look forward to future episodes for NSL practitioners. Thank you.